Gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you. And Father, with our heads bowed, we humble ourselves. Father, we are here to worship you and to hear your word. Father, your word is truth. We ask that as I stand here, I be nothing other than a conduit that your word would flow through, that nothing would be added, nothing would be taken away. You would speak directly to our hearts because we are here for you. Father, it's an honor and it's a privilege to serve you in any way that we are able. Father, we, uh, we know that your word does not return void and we ask that as you, we open it, Father, that you would use it in our hearts. Father, we thank you. Father, we praise you and we love you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Got a text. To most of you here. Uh, and in fact, uh, most of you in this room will remember it very well. But in this case, as in many, familiarity really might the temptation is, as we read scripture that we have read a number of times, no worries. Is this more better? Okay. Thank y'all. Um, if y'all didn't hear the story about the doctor, there's no loss there. Um, <laughs> So this morning, we're going to be talking about a scripture that's very well known to, to most of you. Uh, in, in fact, it's, it's something that, that we have heard a number of times. And in this case, like in many, familiarity might not be our friend. Because you see, the temptation with something that's very familiar is to, yeah, 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 I, I, I know that one, and then tune out. I know that sometimes, even in, in my own quiet times, I will be reading a passage that I'm very familiar with, that I've read a number of times, and I'll notice my mind tuning out. Well, in those cases, what I have trained myself to do is to double down on concentration, and almost invariably is those situations where God will use something that I've read a lot of times to teach me something new or something that really needs to be emphasized. And so that's what we're hoping for today. So let's not tune out. This particular passage, many theologians have said, is one of the greatest passages that there is on justification and salvation, R.C. Sproul being one of those. So if you would, open your Bibles to Luke chapter 18, verses 9 and following. And he also told this parable to some people who, were trusted, who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying to himself, God, thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector, I fast twice a week, I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast saying, 
God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. And they were bringing even babies to him so, they, so that he would touch them. When the disciples saw it, they began rebuking him. But Jesus called to them, saying, Permit the children to come to me, and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. So, y'all, we find ourselves in this particular text between a couple of other parables where Jesus is talking about prayer. He's not as much teaching people how to pray as he is talking about the attitude in prayer and how we present ourselves to God. For a moment, let's look at the characters that we have here. Who were the Pharisees? Well, the Pharisees were a very important and very influential sect within Judaism in the time of Christ and the early church. They were known for their emphasis on personal piety, devotedness, and holiness. In fact, the word Pharisee in Hebrew means separated. They were also known for their acceptance of the oral tradition in addition to the written law. And their teaching that all Jews should observe the 600 plus laws in the Torah, including all those that involved ceremonial purification. The Pharisees were mostly middle-class people, mostly middle-class businessmen and leaders of the synagogue. And even though they were a minority in the Sanhedrin and held a minority number of positions as priests, they held great influence because they were very popular with the people. As we discussed, the Pharisees accepted the written word as the inspired word of God. That's good. So do we. But at the time of Christ, however, and unfortunately, the Pharisees gave equal authority to oral tradition, saying that it dated back to the time of Moses. And evolving over the centuries, the Pharisaic tradition had the effect of adding to God's word. And in Deuteronomy 4, we realize that's forbidden. The gospel is full of examples showing the Pharisees treating their traditions as equal to God's. In Matthew 9 and 15 and 23 and in Luke 11, Jesus, applied, Jesus talked about it and he applied this condemnation to them in Isaiah chapter 29 and 13. Then the Lord said, because this people approaches me with their words and honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me, and their reverence for me consists of the commandment of men that is taught. Jesus applied this condemnation to the Pharisees and said their teaching is merely human rules in Mark 7. 
Well, who were the tax collectors? The other character here. In most cultures, even in ancient times, the tax collectors or the IRS agents of today receive their fair share of condemnation. They are scorned and disfavored by people. The New Testament identifies the occupation of tax collector as publicans, and it was looked down on by the general populace. There are a few reasons why the tax collectors were looked down on in the New Testament. First, no one likes to pay money to the government. I think we can agree with that. And especially to an oppressive regime like the Romans in the first century. Those who collected taxes for such a government bore the weight of a whole lot of public annoyance and displeasure. Second, the tax collectors in the Bible were generally Jews who were working for the hated Romans. These individuals were seen as turncoats or, or traitors to their own countrymen. Benedict Arnold's, if you will, from our point of view. Rather than fighting the Romans, they were helping them. They were enriching themselves at the expense of their fellow Jews. Third, it was understood that the tax collectors cheated people when they collected. By hook or by crook, they would collect more than required and keep the extra for themselves. Everyone just understood that was how it worked. The tax collector Zacchaeus, in his confession to the Lord, mentioned his past dishonesty in Luke 19. And fourth, because of their skimming off the top, the tax collectors were generally rich or well-to-do. That further separated them from the lower classes who they were collecting taxes from. And people resented financing their lavish lifestyles. Because of this ostracization, because they were separated from, I couldn't say that word, sorry. Because they were separated from them, they formed their own cliques, which further separated them from the rest of the people. So we know the characters. Let's look at the scene. And, and in the setup to this parable, Jesus, like most good communicators, tells you what he's going to tell you. So y'all, there's a spoiler alert. But just because there's a spoiler alert, let's not lose attention here. And he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Jesus is presenting the gospel right here. He says he was speaking to people who trusted in their own righteousness. In this world, we can divide people into a number of different kinds of groups. But for the sake of this conversation, let's just say that there's two groups of people in the world. Those that trust their own righteousness and those who don't. Two men went to the temple to pray. So the two men have entered the scene. But what are they doing and where are they going? Well, they're headed up to the temple. Initially, these two individuals have the same agenda. They're going up to the temple to pray. And at this time, people went to the temple twice a day, normally at 9 a.m. in the morning or 3 p.m. in the afternoon. 
They would see the priest offer the sacrifice, burn the incense, and as the smoke went up to heaven, they hoped that their prayers would go up as well. They typically stood and lifted their hands to God to receive and to praise. After the characters are introduced, we get the first one. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And we see that they, what they do individually. Starting with the Pharisee, we begin to see that their agendas start taking pretty different paths here. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. God, I want to thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes on all that I get. The Pharisee stood. Wasn't uncommon during that time, so we can't criticize him for that, unless he was standing for the reason to be seen by others, as Jesus would describe in Matthew 6 and 5. When you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so they may be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their full reward. Context and tradition would show that the Pharisee was probably standing close to the front here. And it was very likely that he was standing alone so that he would not be Levitically defiled by the very proximity to people that he viewed as inferior and unclean. He views them with contempt. And we get another indication of, of how this is going as we listen to his prayer. The words say, to himself. Well, it's probably not a surprise to y'all, but I don't speak anything but barely English, so I had to rely on a whole lot of good, reliable English translations of this to see if he was praying with himself or if he was praying to himself. There's a ginormous difference between those two. So I looked at these translations and most of them said either to or with or by regarding himself. Again, since I only speak English, had to look a little bit further to determine what he was doing. The context indicates that he was the object and the recipient of his prayer. He was praying to himself. And the Pharisee continues. He decided it was a good idea to remind God how good and worthy he is. His thanking God was basically boasting not so much what God had done, but what he had done. He doesn't say he's not, un, he's not unlike, he doesn't say he's unlike others or, or many others. He says, I am unlike other people. He is in a category by himself. He is superior to all those that he's around. And let's further look at the use of the personal pronoun I 
in two short verses, he uses I five times. This dude clearly has eye problems. In the series of eyes, he tells God all about his good character. He's not a swindler. He's not unjust. He's not an adulterer. And if that's not enough, then he decides it's a good idea to start pointing at other people. He's not like tax collectors. No, he doesn't say he's not like tax collectors. He says, I'm not like this tax collector. He pointed out an individual. So we see that not only is he not a swindler, he's not unjust, he's not an adulterer, he is also not kind, he's not subtle, and he's certainly not humble. Then he starts with a list of good that he's done. He fasts twice a week. The law required people to fast once a year on the Day of Atonement. So he beat that one by a lot, didn't he? Tradition holds that the Pharisees would fast on Mondays and Thursdays. Tradition also holds that those were the days that the market was held. And people of the time believed that the Pharisees fasted on those days because they could be seen and their piety could be on display. We see that this Pharisee is unashamed to engage the Lord with confidence in his own righteousness. The holy place didn't intimidate him at all. But before we go to the next character, let's look at Peter's reaction when Jesus had just led them to a miracle catch of fish. In Luke 5, 6 through 9, And when they had done this, they caught a great quantity of fish, and their nets began to tear. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats to the point they were sinking. But Simon Peter saw this, and he fell at Jesus' knees, saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. For amazement had seized him and all his companions because of the catch they had taken. Throughout his public ministry, Jesus exposed the self-righteousness and unbelief of the Pharisees. We see it in Luke 11. He pictured them as debtors too bankrupt to pay what they owed to God in Luke 7, as guests fighting for the best seats in Luke 14, and as sons proud of their obedience but unconcerned about their need, the needs of others in Luke 15. Immediately preceding this parable was the parable of an unjust judge who didn't care about God, didn't respect God or people, but finally did the right thing because he wanted the widow to quit bothering him. And immediately following this parable is the parable of the rich young ruler. The Pharisee pretends to be admirable while worshiping himself. His faith in himself 
creates no ability to love others. This man trusts in his own righteousness. Let's look at the second character. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. What a contrast. You see, this fellow stands at a distance. He's unwilling to approach the holy. He won't even look up toward heaven. He has his head bowed. He comes with nothing but his guilt. He has no list of good deeds, no godly accomplishments, no excuses, and no righteousness. He comes before God only in his guilt and shame. His very presence in the temple was a sign of his penitence because he was a despised person in Israel and come to grips with who he was. Look at what Jesus said on what we call the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 3 and 4. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Those who recognize their own spiritual poverty. Those who mourn and lament their sin and depravity. The tax collector, we see him beating his chest. And, and this is not a show of power like King Kong when he beat his chest. And it's certainly not a show of pride like we see in the movies when a prideful man will beat him chest. Y'all, this is anguish. It was repentance. This wasn't a show for other people or for God. This was a man who was broken by the weight of his sin, who came completely at God's mercy. He doesn't tell God how fortunate he is to have him on his team. He begs for mercy, knowing that he has nothing to offer. And as we read this, let's be very careful that we don't ignore one little but very important word. The tax collector uses the word the before sinner. Not a sinner, but the sinner. Like Paul stating he was the chief of all sinners. We see one man who the people admired and did lots of good things. And we see another man that was by and large hated by all the people and generally known as a thief or a cheat. We see one man that is comfortable and confident as he approaches God and one who is uncomfortable and desperate. We see one man with a short list of sins that he does not commit and another man that recognizes that his list of sins is too numerous to even mention. We see one man relying on his own righteousness and one man who knows he has none. How does Jesus end this story? I tell you this. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. 
For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. The Pharisee went home unchanged, no different than how he had arrived at the temple. But the tax collector went home justified by Jesus Christ, saved by grace. He had begged for mercy and not for justice. We see that Jesus says we can humble ourselves or we can be humbled. When we understand who God is, we better understand who we are. We recognize the difference. And look at what followed this parable. And they were bringing even their babies to him so that he would touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they began rebuking them. But Jesus called for them, saying, Permit the children to come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. People were bringing their babies. You see, babies couldn't get there by themselves. They needed help. Babies don't have a long list of accomplishments of all the good that they've done or the the things that they haven't done. Babies can't even talk yet. That's how we're to come to Jesus, with nothing to offer, because we have nothing to offer. If you think about it for a moment, what is the universal sign that goes across all languages that babies who can't talk can communicate immediately with any of us? They stick their arms up, They want to be held, and we recognize what that means. That's how we are to approach God. We raise our arms because there is nothing that we can do. We are at his mercy. Now, if we see a baby and they they begin crying, and we ignore that, we're heartless and cruel. Y'all, God is neither heartless or cruel. He will answer us when we pray that way. Again, as I stated earlier, there's a number of ways that we can divide people, all sorts of differentiators. But for our purposes today, we're going to say that there's only really one way that matters. It could be summed up in one simple question. Where does your righteousness come from? You see, if it comes from anything other than Christ alone, it's not enough. How many people do we know that get caught up in playing the comparison game? You see, if we we look at other people, at least in some point of reference, we can find people that are worse off than us. Some years ago, when I had a real job, I had a boss that knew I was a believer and would often use that to ridicule me. Good on him, at least he recognized. But at other times, he wanted to have philosophical conversations with me. And one of those conversations invariably was, you know, Grady, I know you're a Christian, but I'm a good man, and that's good enough. But this guy had in previous conversations told me that he was unfaithful to his wife. 
He was stealing from the company, and he was addicted to alcohol. The question is, good compared to who? We can always find someone who makes us look good, at least in some sense. But the only comparison that really yields any fruit is comparison to Jesus. We fall short on that one. If you'll look at, if you'll remember, you don't need to look there, but if you'll remember in Mark 10, Jesus said, why do you call me good? No one is good except God. How can we be saved if we've never been broken or recognize our sin? Paul states in Colossians 2, 8 through 14, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him you also were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. In Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30, Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus, the master carpenter, would custom fit yokes. They were custom fit for who he was making them for. We no longer need to strive futilely for our own righteousness. The burden of self-righteousness is a burden that we cannot bear. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. This is the message that we need to be sharing with a dying and sick world. We all need to come to Jesus like a little child in recognition that we have a need. We need to be forgiven for our sins and we can't fill that need and we are in desperate need of his righteousness for our salvation. Y'all pray with me. Gracious Heavenly Father, we bow our heads. And Father, we bow our heads humbly because we recognize 
that it is only through the righteousness of Jesus Christ that we have any hope. But, Father, because of Jesus, we have great hope. Father, we ask that you would teach us to humble ourselves, that we would come before you with our arms lifted up, seeking what only you can provide. Father, draw us to you that we would be more like Jesus. Father, we ask that you would give us boldness, you would give us courage as we approach a world that needs to know that there is only your righteousness. Father, that we would ask the question, where does your righteousness come from? Father, we thank you. In Christ's name, amen.